0: Did you ever get stage fright? Me, I was born with stage fright, you know, I mean, once we lose uh, those butterflies, hmm, we might have lost the game. We've (laughs) lost the edge. (laughs) Rick Danko stated once, those first royalty checks we got, almost killed some of us. By 1970, the band was starting to reap the rewards of their first two albums. Remember, it had only been two years since the release of music from Big Pink. It may feel like an elongated period of time, but the band was a workhorse, powering through producing an album yearly, while also staying busy on other projects. They were now receiving millions of dollars for the songs that they wrote and performed. For example, Rick Danko, who wrote This Wheel's On Fire, which wasn't a hit, but when he got a royalty check, it was nearly half a million dollars. However, you see what happens time and time again with individuals that get mass amounts of money quickly. They don't know how to save it. To put that into context, specifically with the band, we're talking about a group of mostly uneducated farm boys. Not to discredit them, but many of the members of the band didn't even go through high school. They spent their years on the road playing music. They never worried or learned about money management. Why would they? They never thought they'd have any. And as we've seen yet and yet again, money leads to problems when you're famous. And the stories of people leeching isn't any different here. The band had become a target for people who wanted to make them happy. And that also meant giving them copious amounts of dope to do favors for them. This type of behavior ended up killing plenty of their peers during the era and had a profound effect on the band for the rest of their existence. Levon remembers during the turn of the decade, heroin was beginning to come around Woodstock. He later stated, It was everywhere. Being a musician, you couldn't avoid it. The dealers get you. You start with just a little bit. At a party, have a little fun, it feels good, but it quickly becomes a problem. Now, you can't survive on just a little bit. You want more, and it consumes you, and it never stops. And this is the period where many of the members started using heroin. Now, the drug changes you, more so than cocaine, which the band took plenty of, but heroin changed your personality in a way in which made it harder for people to be around you. And obviously, that started affecting the way they played music. It was a trigger. Any argument or issue that could be dealt by with the normal person, just by talking to them, was now out of reason because of heroin. Now, there were other issues unrelated to drugs, but that didn't help the tension that was already beginning to plague the band with issues around the music business interests and all the drugs all combined into a toxic concoction. Honestly, like many artists, the band needed their management to step in and educate and control their interests in a productive way. But that seems almost naive with Albert Grossman. He was more concerned with his bottom line. And he let the band spin into a chaotic cyclone when it came to understanding and controlling their interests in the music business from a monetary standpoint going into stage fright with this aforementioned tension and drug use changed the way the band made music i think because of the burden of how the business side was handled it directly affected the collaborative effort of the band which at its core made it unique and work people like richard manuel started participating less and less in the songwriting department It was disputed, but there was confusion. There was a lot of time to sit down and figure it out, but the labels and the management were trying to rip these guys apart slowly and quietly, like they had done with so many other groups like Elvis or Buddy Holly or even Roy Orbison. Why have a band all collaborating and making one product when you can separate them and conquer them individually and get multiple projects with multiple albums going? Now that obviously never happened in that specific vision with the band, Because they were built on a strong backbone of brotherhood and working together, which, at the end of the day, when worse came to worse, I think really helped them. However, the stage fright period, and after, was a trying time. And from that, you get a unique album. Beginning in 1970, the band spent three months on the road touring. They were getting into a groove, with no obstacles of injuries in their way or anything else. The band had discussed with Albert Grossman a small tour of concert halls where they could only focus on their music. The band made way for Canada playing a large section of shows across the country. Two of note, were their double show at the famous Massey Hall on Saturday, January 17, 1970 in Toronto with Jesse Winchester opening. It wasn't the first time the band had played in canada since becoming famous but nonetheless the show was a homecoming of sorts the energy about the band playing was electric and according to martin nealman a writer for the globe and mail backstage the rock hustlers and old friends and relatives and hangers-on are drifting in an unlikely assortment of swingers hippies and farmers having in common the fact any of them could have walked off the album jacket from Music From Big Pink. In fact, some of them did walk off the album cover of Music From Big Pink in their next of kin photo. Garth Hudson's mother was present, questioning why Garth was only wearing socks to perform. And Robbie Robertson's mother was there, a local, boasting about how every member of the band had called her mom. Jesse Winchester opened the show well, but the band went on 30 minutes late due to an out-of-tune piano. But that didn't matter. When the band went on, it was like a religious experience. Peter Goddard said for the Toronto Telegram, the packed audience hushed for each song erupting into standing ovation at the conclusion just a hint of humor caused laughs just a slight bit of symbol work by Von helm and the beat was felt like a shudder. the show was 65 minutes of pure musicianship and the band demonstrated the best of their craft the reviews in the following days reflect such jack Battern reviewed the show for the toronto daily star two days removed and had a few interesting observations about the show and i've compiled them here One, the deep, visceral cry that was never out of Richard Manuel's voice. Two, Rick Danko's completely appealing singing on The Unfaithful Servant. Three, Garth Hudson's longish organ solo that combined it all things from Bach to Odeon Carlton Grand Console Pump in one hilarious mix. Four, the beautiful weaving together of Manuel's voice with Levon Helms in half a dozen different songs. Five, the great visual pleasure the five of them offered. Robertson in his splendid leather jacket, Manuel in his purple shirt and pirate's beard, secretive and deadpan Hudson, Helm, who looks sly and wore jeans, and Danko, the friendly one. And six, the astonishing climax of emotion on the concert's 13th and 14th song, the merging of the night they drove old Dixie down and across the great divide not even the excellent reading of up on cripple creek the one encore number that followed could touch the thrill of their playing in those two songs it was perfect with massey hall under their belt and great reviews to boot the group continued throughout southern ontario as well as the vast western portions of canada before heading to california for a few shows After a rather rocky start with touring and playing live again with a mixture of tech and sound issues and their unwillingness to play live and quite honestly their stiffness was now an afterthought. They had two albums of material plus a glut of well received cover tunes to carry their shows. However, touring was still relatively sparse compared to other acts playing 300 plus shows a year. The road was a great distraction for the band but they wanted and needed to get back into the studio to record another album. Thus, plotting began for stage fright. With the band recording their first two albums, mainly between Los Angeles and New York City, they were looking to change it up. Also, Capitol Records wanted to record cheaply and quickly. Thus, the idea of creating a record live was a solution in which they could achieve this. Robertson later commented, After the band album, I thought this thing was being taken too seriously. Let's have a little bit of a goof off here. Let's do some fun things, and let's do more of a just a good time kind of record. To achieve all of their goals for the new record, they chose the Woodstock Playhouse, a little summer stock theater, to record. The Woodstock Playhouse was built in the spring of 1938 by Robert Elwin, an actor and theater manager. He turned to his uncle, Arthur Elwin to help him build the theater from Albert Milliken's design in just 48 days. And not long after they performed their first show, Yes My Darling, in June of 1938. In short time, the Woodstock Playhouse became famed and was graced with performances from famed actors such as Carl Malden, Alyssa Landy, and Lillian Gish. In 1960, the Playhouse was purchased by Edgar Rosenblum, who ushered in a new era, with a mixture of popular Broadway plays and contemporary dramas, which included performances by Diane Keaton, Lee Marvin, Chevy Chase, and Peter Boyle. Rosenblum also pushed through much more programming with Saturday morning children's productions and midnight performances. With Woodstock becoming a musician's haven, this led to midnight performances by Peter Yarrow, Jack Elliott, Pete Seeger, Artie Trom, Tim Hardin, and of course the band. According to Levon, the idea was to rehearse for a few weeks before going in and cutting the record on a weekend. However, word got out and they had a few thousand ticket requests from across the United States and the world. This scared the local population. The idea of thousands of people coming back into Woodstock hearkened too close to home, no pun intended. They didn't want a Woodstock Festival 2.0 and the town put an end to the live venue for the band to record. That didn't stop the guys from using the venue though. Instead, they used the stage to perform the prop room as a control room and Capital sent a truck with recording gear for their purposes. There was also a question about who was going to produce the album. John Simon had played such a major role on their first two albums, even wanting to be a member. He was as good as one, contributing to the music as well as being the go-to guy for taking all of the individual talent of the band and putting it together. According to Robbie. Rick was the one that didn't want John Simon to produce Stage Fright, and collectively they wanted to take a stab at producing it themselves. It would also be cheaper. There was hesitation from Robbie, and he states in his book Testimony, To me, John was like family. He played such a vital role in discovering our musical path, but I could see how strongly the boys felt, and if producing ourselves would get everybody involved, I was all for it. However, the band couldn't handle writing, playing, producing on top of engineering. So they brought in Todd Rundgren, who had previously had a relationship with the band and Albert Grossman through Bearsville Records, and he was the go-to engineer. And because of the nature of how the album was to be recorded, there was no extended writing time with the band when they began to record, rather everything was well-prepared and they were ready to record stage fright. Strawberry Wine is a different type of opener for the band. While on one hand it is upbeat like their self-titled albums Across the Great Divide and shares the theming of hopeless drinking, it's still very different. It is also refreshing that it is penned by Levon, taking lead. He was inspired by a recent trip back home from Arkansas. At first the song feels simple, yet it is complex upon a deeper dig. At first the song feels quite simple, yet it's complex upon digging deeper. An observation that could be attached to many other band songs. Strawberry Wine sets the tone for the album and it shows the production changes. Everything is a little bit more polished. It also has an edgier feel and follows a more traditional rock sound of the era. It could also be argued that it harkens back to the style and the times of their playing with Ronnie Hawkins. A lot more straightforward. Now, the track is credited to Levon and it has his style written all over it, from the lyrics to the danceable nature of the backbeat. Much like Across the Great Divide and other songs by the band, the song features a character of questionable background, a man that likes to drink, a man who chases after a woman, and a man who does questionable things for what he wants. You hear Richard behind the kit on this track, loose and jazzy. The cymbals are cleaner and more piercing, probably having something to do with the production changes. The other half of the back end is Rick Danko, steady as ever on bass guitar, which John Burks comments on in Rolling Stone, calling it hardy chunk along bass. The way he grooves, is bluesy, channeling his influences of Motown's Motown's James Jamerson. Rick Danko is quoted as saying his approach to the bass was, I don't think I play bass lines, I just try to play where there's no one else hitting it. That makes a lot of sense. And Garth Hudson yet again shines on the accordion, providing what Rolling Stone called richly connected, series of rippling, gurgling tremolos. And Robbie drives home the opener with a rockabilly lick, You can tell already from the beginning of the record that Robbie will be hearkening back to his influences in early rock and blues on this album. His riffing is stiff and hard and it drives the song rhythmically, with bass and drums, further proving that the band had one of the best rhythm sections in rock music. While Strawberry Wine may have been one of Levon's only credited songwriting contributions to the band's discography, it remains strong and underrated. It blends all of the elements and the essences of what you believe the band is. Additionally, it was recorded in one take, showing the power of the band's ability to cut a track. John Simon later confirmed this by saying, We went in and did it, and Levon saying it live. It was terrific on one take, and we didn't go any further. And without much surprise, the band transitions from strawberry wine and romping rock opener into a slower, plaintive ballad. outstanding moments on stage fright from a writing perspective is the album's second track sleeping the song opens in richard's signature plaintive style airy and thoughtful full of what writer nick dirizio stated hopelessness and yet also defeated the song shares many similarities with whispering pines and feel it's emotive and fragile but it also has manuals open and airiness akin to In a station and I dare say somewhat psychedelic, similar to something that you'd find on George Harrison's albums in the early 70s. The lyrics help to continue the tone of an album that is taking itself far more seriously and self-reflexive. The first words uttered by Manuel are, For the life we chose in the evening we rose, just long enough to be lovers again, and for nothing more, the world was too sore to live in. Poetic, painful, and questioning, something that Manuel is often credited with. It seems to be deeply personal, when we continue with lyrics like I spent my whole life guessing and I turned from the sun and saw everyone searching, extremely dark, and some have pointed outside of the personal sphere of what Manuel may have been feeling about himself, but rather about the world and the political climate of the time. The band wasn't often too forward with their political sensibilities, but rather hid it within their songs. Musically, the song starts as a waltz before transitioning into a more progressive jazz influence. Rick Danko employs his new favorite toy, an Ampeg fretless bass guitar, and Levon fills him behind on the drums with a series of tasteful fills, helping push the subtle urgency of the song's lyrics. Additionally, you have Garth behind the keyboards, helping lay down organ as the song picks up in pace, and later on the song, Robbie provides a tasteful but urgent guitar solo, paired nicely with Garth's Lowry organ before the song settles back down. Sleeping does not get the recognition that Whispering Pines does, but perhaps is more musically a far superior song in a track that is severely underrated on this album. Time To Kill is a country-tinged rocker, maybe worthy of Time's moniker of the band. magazine put the band on the cover and labelled them the new sound in country rock, that may have puzzled everybody, including the band, but but Time To Kill, the third track on the album, is a country-tinged rocker worthy of the moniker. The song starts like a 1950s Hawkins rockabilly number. Raunchy and hard, Robertson comes in with a searing guitar riff backed by Levon's unorthodox rhythm guitar playing. While more showy than we are used to from Robertson, it is still economical, and the playing is juxtaposed with Levon's rhythmic drum fills. Time to Kill also has a very unusual rhythm structure. The lyrical structure and how the song is sung isn't in line with the meter timing in which the instrumentation is following. This gives the song an off-kilter feel, a technique that the band uses often. The off-time accents either from the instrument or more often the vocal harmony is quite a signature. And back on the keys, you have a wonderful dual performance by Manuel and Hudson. Manuel is providing a very rhythmic country piano progression while Garth's organ is searing, much like Robbie's guitar. And Rick takes lead vocals, providing a hearty and homey vocal performance accented by Richard's brilliant harmonies. And on the chorus, you get a little leave-on coming in on the low end. It works as Rick exudes around the campfire type feel. Time to Kill is meant to be fun and casual, not a technical masterpiece. And the lyrics represent this. Time To Kill is meant to be fun and casual, not a technical masterpiece, and I think the band understood this. The obvious reference to the Catskills is in there, mentioning the Woodstock area, their remote oasis. The lyrics, in a sense, can reference that despite the fame and the money and the profile the group is getting, they're still having the same fun and are still go-lucky people who love their home. And with that, the record keeps the tempo moving forward with another rocker, just another whistle song. Just Another Whistle Stop is a shift in tone for the first time on the album. With Sleeping and Time To Kill coming up the rear, Just Another Whistle Stop is darker in perception. It makes sense after all. It was written by Richard Manuel. You can expect a darker flare. Regardless of that darkness, it cannot be said enough that the best word to describe this song is powerful. Not necessarily lyrically, but the power of the music. When it hits, it kicks you right in the teeth and holds none back. When the band entered into the studio, They had mostly polished works, but Just Another Whistle Stop was still a project underway and took some time to work out. Barney Hoskins suggests that Whistle Stop is written in the same style like previous tunes on albums like Jawbone and Lookout Cleveland. Urgency, prickly, and influence more from a more urban sound that touched their music. Lyrically, the song discusses a boy or a young man that is running from the police or the law or something in some sort of trouble. But then there's a pitchman that offers him a ride out of town, aboard a train. Then the song transitions into talking about the salvation of the train, taking the youth away. Interestingly, while completing the song, the band was offered an opportunity that would later become infamous, the Festival Express Tour. A summer Canadian tour aboard a train with Janis Joplin, the Grateful Dead, and others. We'll hear more on that later. Musically, Stop gallops at a rapid pace with a series of time changes. The rhythm is held and pushed full throttle by Danko and Helm and Robbie inserts his best guitar lines that sit on top of the rest of the mix, which seems to be a choice on this album. Hudson also adds his signature Lowry organ to further push the tune forward. All the power and speed is quickly put to a halt, however, and we change pace when we're rather abruptly welcomed to another side of the band with all the glory. It's time for you to dream away From what a big day you've been through In essence, all of glory is a lullaby, primarily written by Robertson channeling his best Richard Manuel. Robertson, a new father, was ecstatic over the birth of his daughter and the start of his peaceful family life in Woodstock. Though, John Simon later stated, "'I can't be sure, Robbie may have written it "'for his little girl, "'or it may have been more universal than that.'" It's also interesting to note by 1970, multiple members of the band had begun to have children. Whether it was Robbie with his two children, or Richard and his wife Jane having their first daughter, or Levon and Libby having their daughter, Amy, the idea of creating a song for their children is wholesome and very unlike much of rock imagery of the day. The music and the lyrics are quite simple and plain, but what really elevates the song is Levon's inspired vocal performance. It's a fantasy And to me it's all a mystery all a glory I'm second story Feels so tall like a wall. And Nick Dorizio sums up Levon's vocal perfectly. Too often Levon Helm is framed by his country-fried howl, but there was always more to his art. More to his voice, to his persona, to his life. All that glory is a great place to achieve a vista of what lays beyond the hoot-nanny joys of up on Cripple Creek, Rag Mama Rag, and Strawberry Wine. The performance is also so raw. You even hear Levon's voice swelling crack towards the end of the song. It's small details like that that make a song like this and the band so unique. The focal point of the music is yet again Garth Hudson. From his enchanting accordion playing to his wonderful organ solo, Barney Hoskins said on Garth's playing, a middle eighth section worthy of Hoagie Carmichael, Garth's most enchanting solo, a freeform organ fantasia that conjured images of old cinema voices. With Garth's playing, Robbie also finds a way to elegantly fit in his electric guitar, and the pair comes together so well. With All that Glory, the band ends off the first side of their record on a more positive note. Tonally, we've already been put through the ringer, with emotions coming from anger, happiness, sadness, depravity, anxiety, and just plain exhaustion. And that doesn't change as we go into Side 2. Side 2 offers up what we've seen more from the band on previous records, a familiar lyrical style, shared singing and harmonies, and more layered musical arrangements. The Shape I'm In doesn't mince words or try to hide the intent. The band is often known for having a message or singing a song with a cause and it's not always right there hitting you in the face. This isn't necessarily the case with The Shape I'm In. After finishing one of the strongest two-year runs in rock history, the band and Richard Manuel in particular were quite spent. The toll had been taken. Richard was damaged. Years of alcohol and drug abuse were catching up rapidly, and heroin was making things much worse. It should be noted that Richard, among many other people during this time, were just mentally ill. There was a little help or understanding of how mental health could manifest itself in crippling ways like abuse of drugs and alcohol. And that's more evident today, as we see in Robertson's 2019 documentary, Once We're Brothers. Robertson mentions the lack of understanding that he and the band had about Richard's mental health and how they most likely aided in his vices rather than help him stop it out of pure ignorance. And from those turbulent times came The Shape I'm In. robertson it's clearly about richard's hard living lifestyle and ironically it features lead vocals from Manuel and one of his most memorable staple songs by the band the shape i'm in starts with richard's strong heiner pianette with the Mutron phase shifter and it's rhythmic and driving with robertson supplying his usual guitar tricks with a unique soul country flair danko adds a rather funky bass line to help the blues rock groove and the vocal is concentrated yet concerned As the introduction of the song concludes and we are introduced to the rest of the band, full force instrumentation, all happening slightly ahead of Levon's drum beat. Garth Hudson occupies the Lowry organ, adding fills throughout with a solo section that elevates the fairly straight rocker. Lyrically, the song starts pretty straightforward and choppy, just like the music. However, yet again, there's biblical allusions in this song with Peace in the Valley reference, which is a popular Protestant hymn. And then we are thrown into the chorus with a wonderful triple harmony with Levon and Rick adding their voices. The lyric is what writer D.L. Lewis called a plaintive cry of frustration. You don't know the shape I'm in, the "you" is directed at the listener and the listener cannot know how bad it is. What further elevates the shape I'm in from a straight rock tune is the change in the bridge we are treated to a shift into a lovely melody we are then treated again to religious illusion when the lyric refers to the head down to the water it's clearly referring to baptism however as Lewis writes again the singer is not after redemption he is not going to jump in instead he's looking for his maker is it a call for his mother or a feminized God there is also a darker interpretation that Robertson may have prophesied about Richard's situation the meeting the maker is also a euphemism for suicide and meeting one's death the situation for the character in the lyrics doesn't really get much better as the song progresses either suggesting that he has nearly spent all of his nine lives and that because and because of the things that he has done he's not going to heaven he also spent 60 days in jail for being a vagrant and has nowhere to go the downtrodden character is not a new theme for the band and lewis suggests robertson understands the frustration of the lower strata of society Of major lyricists, only Springsteen surpasses Robertson in the modern era in his empathy and understanding of poverty and the struggles of the working class. And while Robertson talks about this same type of thing in his lyrical approach on other songs, the shape I'm in at the core is very pessimistic. Critic Grielle Marcus takes it one step further and adds, the song sets the stage for the political drama that is woven into the fabric of stage fright. Regardless of the idea that the song may or may not be about Richard Manuel, Richard sings it with vigor, nonetheless, Lewis later adding, Manuel sang the song with anger. All in all, The Shape I'm In is one of the band's most lively and energetic songs. It's seemingly straightforward in its approach, but loaded with connotations. And for any, is it a call for his mother or a feminized god? A newcomer, The Shape I'm In is one of the band's most approachable songs. Critically, it's also been well-esteemed. Critic Mark Kemp wrote that The Shape I'm In is the highlight of the album, and music critics praise the song, for its penetrating psychological acuity. From there, we move into W.S. Walcott's Medicine Show, one of the last tracks finished and recorded not completely at the Playhouse, but rather in New York City. Walcott is based on Levon's childhood, specifically Levon's fondness for the F.S. Walcott's original Rabbit Foot Minstrels as a source of inspiration. For those not familiar with minstrel or variety troupe shows, they were a popular source of entertainment in the early 19th century. Each show would typically consist of comic skits, dancing, variety acts, and musical performances that were most likely from African Americans. Or, if the show was performed by white people, they would be in blackface. Specifically, with Walcott's rabbit foot minstrels, it was founded by a black entrepreneur, Pat Chappelle, and eventually taken over by a white farmer named Fred Swift Walcott, where it further grew to include many well-known entertainers, including blues singer Ida Cox, and others like Rufus Thomas and Maxwell Street, Jimmy James. These shows would go through Levon's town as a child and entertain him and his family, and particularly influenced his early interest in music. Here's Levon on the traveling road shows. Most of the show stuff though was uh, like traveling shows, like tent shows. One was Walcott's Rabbit's Foot Minstrels. uh, What was that? Walcott's Walcott's Rabbit's Foot Minstrels. You know they used to uh, have the show start right and have the singers and the players and the different uh, parts of the show then the master of ceremonies would come out you know just before the finale and explain right. that after the finale after the kids go home they'd have the midnight ramble right the, the, midnight, the midnight the midnight ramble and the songs would get a little bit juicier and uh, the jokes would get a little funnier and the prettiest dancer would really get down and shake it a few times. A lot of the rock and roll, uh, duck walks and uh, steps and moves came from a lot of that." With these stories, Robbie helped craft lyrics that feature many colorful characters. Nick DiRizzio states in his retrospective review of the lyrics, The various colorful disguises of this sideshow escapade, the various sleight-of-hand ruses, and the framework for an allegory on the dangers of a lifestyle that has rapidly ensnared the band after a two-album rocket ride to stardom at the end of the 60s, pretty much sums it up well. Additionally, like many other songs on the album, the lyrics, at least according to a few critics, could be a commentary on the life of Richard, who was faltering further into drug abuse like we've stated. However, the lyrical content could also be a lot more straightforward and speak to the area of the American party, a good time. At least according to All About Jazz writer C. Michael Bailey, who believes that the song represents the American archetype of the celebration and good time. Levon Helm holds down the fort on lead vocals. Nobody could really deliver a more authentic performance but he's also helped from Rick Danko, which gives the song the band's perfect brand of off-kilter, slightly out of time, good time, you feel. Barney Hoskins states that the song comes closer than any other on stage fright to the mood of the band's previous album, The Band. A special attention should be played to Garth Hudson's saxophone playing. Hudson pulls deep into the New Orleans sound and brings influences from the famed tenor sax player like Lee Allen. On the recording occupying the tenor and baritone sax with a solo from the tenor, John Simon also stopped by to play the trombone. He was very much part of these sessions even though he didn't produce them. John Burke states in his review of the album that Hudson's work on the sax is special. Garth Hudson stands up from the keyboard to set loose a mystery tenor saxophone, Enigma, which puts me in the mind of the emotions as it starts, and then at the end where Hudson chomps into the reed and makes it gritty, There resides the spirit of Ben Webster, another great tenor player whose roots, like Hudson, are from an earlier time. Hudson's preaching here is the kind that's done outside church, down where the steam comes from. And from Walcott, we move into an equally rich and layered performance in the song Daniel and the Sacred Harp. Levon said much later in life that Daniel and the Sacred Harp was about selling your soul for music, and it's really a hidden gem. Very much in the vein of The Wait or King Harvest, the song is crafted with the same intention. As critic Peter Viney writes, Daniel and the Sacred Harp is based on the Foss story in the American incarnation, essentially the idea of the artist that trades their soul for the ability to play music, a trope that we later see in songs like Charlie Daniel's The Devil Went Down to Georgia. Or a myth that we hear often when we learn about characters and artists like robert johnson the idea of a man selling their soul for talent also hits a personal note for the band robertson is quoted about his time with roy buchanan buchanan had played with the hawks overlapping some members of the band writer barney hoskins got this quote from robertson on buchanan he told me a lot of stories crazy stories about how he was half wolf half man They were like stories you heard about Robert Johnson selling his soul to the devil. We know these are just silly stories, but at the same time, they're fascinating American mythology. Like we'd be sitting in a room playing together and I'd ask Buchanan how he figured out some of the licks and he'd say, well, I can't really tell you, clearly implying that he too had made some sort of pact. Years later, it became obvious that he was playing a game with me. But Hoskin takes it further, speculating that Robertson himself also made some pact with the devil, which Robertson jokingly accepts, leading him, years later, to writing Daniel and the Sacred Harp. Now, the song features the perspective of two individuals, Daniel, who is voiced by Richard, and Levon, who is used as the narrator, is also voiced. Later noted by writer Harry Smith, it seems often when the band writes a song with a biblical or otherworldly perspective, the voice of Levon is used, just like the wait. Whereas Richard is playing Daniel, who seems younger and eager, a strong parallel is made between Daniel and the members of the band, given the context of the previous Robertson quotes. Daniel in the Sacred Harp also starts with what seems to be the chorus. Interestingly, the chorus is only used at the beginning of the song and at the end, like bookends, rather than the traditional chorus that we see in pop music. As was intended with many band songs, the lyric reads more like a book or a screenplay and features strong storytelling and a cinematic feel. You can picture the lyrics clearly in your head. And musically, Daniel and the Sacred Harp is deeply rich. Levon occupies the lead vocal role but also plays the 12-string acoustic guitar with a heavy clean strum. Richard occupies the second lead vocal and sits behind the drum kit, keeping it simple and loose. Rick plays what could either be an acoustic bass or a fretless bass. Given his recent experimentation with the fretless on the album, it's likely the case that it was used again. Danko also plays the double role of playing the fiddle, one of the few instances where we see his skill. Paired with the great fiddle part is Robertson occupying the electric guitar, simple and clean and effective. Robertson plucks carefully and tastefully, using the slide to give the song a country-like tinge. Robertson also occupies the auto-harp on the track, giving Daniel a part of its trademark sound. For those unfamiliar with the auto-harp, it's a small instrument, often made of wood in a rectangular shape with a guitar-like sound hole. Strumming it similar to a guitar, it has an open and airy harpsichord or guitar sound and is used more as a rhythmic instrument. The auto-harp was adopted notably by the Carter family, And interestingly, the auto harp is used heavily and became prominent when used in Carol Reed's film The Third Man. It makes sense as it happens to be one of Robertson's favorite films. Lastly, Garth is clearly playing the pump organ, featuring this distinctive sound. Hudson's fascination with pump organs began as a child when his father and he would restore them. The pump organ adds that final layer of richness, making it unique and an important addition to the band's canon. Next on the album, you have the namesake, Stage Fright. as the band themselves, loaded with various meanings and detailed history of its inception. Primarily written by Robertson, the song's meaning is quite literal, the theme of being afraid of the stage. That makes sense for Robertson, as he had recently suffered a famous bout of side effects from extreme anxiety about the band's first live gig at Winterland in San Francisco. Levon later backs up this claim in his memoir, saying the song is about the terror of performing. However, that hasn't stopped others from attempting to speculate on the situation and what other themes could be at play. Daniel Yeif wrote in his 2011 book, Bob Dylan, Like a Complete Unknown, it could have been about Bob, who had become reclusive after his 1966 accident. Dylan's often tremulous relationship with being on the stage made plenty sense. Additionally, critic William Ruhlman had suggested a more general approach to the lyrics, saying that simply it's about the pitfalls of fortune and fame. Now, the song is sung by Rick Danko, however, it wasn't always the plan. When workshopping the song and going track by track, according to Barney Hoskins' book Across the Great Divide, Richard Manuel was originally intended to sing the song. From a glance, it makes sense, as Stage Fright is a piece with a great vocal range, and it has soaring verses and a soaring chorus structure. Danko eventually was the right choice, as his off time nervous, tremulous voice fit the theme of the song. Aside from the singing, there's a lot of great musicianship at play and stage fright. The key of the song is primarily C major, but at different points in the song where it makes sense, we shift relative keys to help sell the song's message. An example of this is in the lyrical passage, and for the price that the poor boy had paid, he got to sing just like a bird. The key shifts to F sharp major, increasing the tension leading into Garth Hudson's fantastic organ solo. In Neil Midturn's book The Last Waltz of the Band, he praises Hudson's 16-bar solo for the use of pace, rest, rhythm, and pitch to work together to hold back, to balance or to tip forward just at the right time. The rhythm section is also supplied by Levon and Rick. Rick is using his fretless bass, which was quickly becoming his staple, and Levon accents where needed, his drums piercing through a little bit more than previous efforts, the drums being a little less damp-sounding and hitting through the mix a lot more. Critically, Stage Fright became one of the band's most well-known songs. Fame critic Ralph J. Gleason suggested that Stage Fright may have been the best song ever written about performing, and music critic Mark Kemp states that it reveals a growing sense of anxiety and cynicism by the band in his review in 1979's The Rolling Stone Record Guide. And that sense of anxiety and cynicism didn't stop with Stage Fright. Next up is The Rumor the most underrated song in the band's catalog. one of the songs on stage Fright* that could easily fit into the first two studio efforts most effortlessly. It is also the longest song on the album clocking in at 4 minutes and 16 seconds as Nick D'Erizio states in his respective review of the song, the band roused themselves once more and found that magical place that they inhabited their own very large myth once more. There are many layers to the intent of the lyrics on the song. The rumor could be born out of how Bob Dylan was feeling about Woodstock by 1970. The town had been overrun by post-Woodstock festival crowds. The once idyllic small town was now a prime spot for pilgrimages from people from around the world. More than that, people were still obsessive over Dylan. They stalked his home and made his wife and children feel uncomfortable. On another level, it's about the gossip of a small town as a whole. Everyone knew each other and the artists all talked. It didn't help that heroin had entered the scene and only heightened paranoia and gossip. John Simon later confirmed this in a statement, simply saying, The rumor is about Woodstock. You can tell from where somebody's car is parked who they were fucking. The song's lyrics follow the story of a man who is ostracized on the basis of his loose lips, and the victimized man just hopes for a brand new day. As filmmaker and writer Mick Gold stated on the song's character, the rumor is a metaphor for every insidious and malevolent force that cannot be combated directly. The Rumor is the last grasp at what the band used to sound like. On an album of individual efforts, The Rumor features a vocal performance by its three primary singers interlacing and working towards a piercing soulful performance. Particularly Manuel's voice pushes the song over the top with his beautiful vocal runs as he demonstrates yet again his massive range and power. Listen here. Writer John Swenson said of the song in the late 70s that he believed that the vigilantes talked about in the song referred to the critics. Critics are often less interested in finding out what the band is saying than fending them into a preconceived mode. The rumor finally caps off an album which the theme is about darkness, paranoia, and fear. It's a bittersweet moment as the band moved forward from this album into complete uncertainty. With the album complete in record time, it was next on the agenda to make a master. Again, they changed their process from their previous two albums, and the band at least originally was more hands-off with the mixing and mastering. The band decided to experiment with finishing the LP with having John Glens and Todd Rundgren do completely separate mixes. Rundgren was a known entity, but John's for the band wasn't and Johns wasn't a slouch. Born in Surrey, England in 1942 to a father who was an insurance executive and a stay-at-home mother who encouraged him to join the choir, Johns originally was trained in the choir and a performer in a semi-pro band in his teenage years. He later left school early and began an apprenticeship at London's IBC Studios as an audio engineer in 1959 and lived for some time with the Rolling Stones founding member Ian Stewart. Johns' career started right as the British invasion hit and did many work on up-and-coming groups in the 60s like The Rolling Stones, The Beatles, The Who, and The Kings. Johns was approached to mix stage fright after apparently Levon didn't like Rundgren's mixes, and wanted to go with Johns after meeting him on the the Isle of Wight festival. However, there's been much confusion on which mixes made the final original album. For a number of years, it was believed that Johns had mixed the entire album except for just another whistle stop. Then it was believed that seven songs on the album were Rundgren's mixes and three of them were John's mixes. The confusion stems from the fact that the band really didn't even know themselves who had mixed it. However, in 2004, writer Josh Barron spoke to Rundgren about mixing the album, and he cleared the air on the confusion. Here's what Rundgren had to say. Here's what actually happened. They had made an arrangement with John's to have him mix the album. Since I recorded the whole album, they figured I should have a shot at mixing the album as well. So they sent me with tapes to London and put me in one studio and I would mix. I gave half the reels to Glenn and he was mixing half the reels while I was mixing the other half of the reels. And then we swapped reels, completing our mixes. Then I came back with two versions of the record. As it turns out, they weren't completely happy with either, so we went back in the studio and did the whole series of remixes with the band there. So those were essentially the band's own remixes. We went back to Bearsville studio and essentially went through the very long, torturous remix process because it was five guys. We spent all day mixing a tune and then we would take the references back and come back the next day with all new ideas or sometimes start the mixes all over again. It took a terrifically long time because you had to satisfy five guys. So in the end, I had no idea which ones went on the original record or which ones may have been on the reissue of the record because in the end, they made the decision about which ones would go on which one. And I'm pretty sure on the original release, it was a combination of the three. There may have been one or two mixes I did, a couple that John's did, but also many were done in the third mix session with the band all there. Thus, in the end, the band became very much a part of the process again. And according to Johns, Robbie never really wanted to use him, saying in an interview, I don't think Robbie wanted me to do it at all. In fact, it turned into a game. It was a competition, which I thought was howfully amusing. Johns also didn't really like the material, nor did he like how it was recorded. So he went into Island Records Studios and did what he could. And in the end, the mixes that you hear on the original pressing is a combination of all three. Following the mixing, The band was also hard at work on putting together the rest of the LP, taking a somewhat different approach to the album as they hired Bob Cato to design the cover. Bob Cato, who designed Stage Fright, was born in the early 1920s in New Orleans, Louisiana to Cuban immigrants. During his teenage years, he spent time painting with well-known Mexican-American painter Pablo O'Higgins, who was an active member of the Mexican Communist Party and who had also had work in the Museum of Modern Art. Additionally, Cato studied with many Mexican caricaturists and painters that were well known for their political murals in Mexico. He also traveled worldwide and painted murals in New York City, California, and Hanover. His mentors, along with his Quaker background, led him to be imprisoned during World War II as a conscious objector. Cato then went to Chicago to study at the Bauhaus School, and in 1947, he moved to Philadelphia to study with famed art director and magazine designer Alexey Bradovich becoming his assistant at Harper's Bazaar. In 1959, Cato moved to Columbia Records and became the vice president of creative services before moving on to United Artists. This is where he started designing hundreds of album covers for artists like Johnny Cash, Miles Davis, Bob Dylan, George Harrison, Janis Joplin, Van Morrison, and of course, the band. Additionally, Cato assigned Norman Sheaf, a photographer, to shoot liner note art for the album. It was his first big gig. On his way to Woodstock, Sheaf got lost, arriving an hour late. And Sheaf later recalls that the band were pissed off, that their time was being wasted. And another problem arose. Sheaf couldn't afford to buy enough film, so he could only shoot for one hour. Embarrassed, Sheaf simply slipped the developed photos under Kato's door. Two weeks later, Cato called him up and said that the photo was going to become part of the wraparound poster, elevating Sheaf's profile. This led Chief to photograph many iconic shots for Ray Charles, Joni Mitchell, The Eagles, Andy Warhol, and Tina Turner. With the album art completed and the album mixed, Capitol Records released Stage Fright on August 17th, 1970. It was a commercial success. The band was now a known commodity, shipping large numbers of units and reaching number five on the Billboard's pop charts. However, it wasn't a critical success much like their first two albums. Also, the singles weren't doing well. Time To Kill and The Shape I'm In were the A and B side, respectively, but a bootlegged version of Don't Do It started playing on the radio, which led to some confusion of its inclusion on the record, which it wasn't. One of the major issues critics had with the album was its lack of communal feel and the Americana vibe with various character sketches. In retrospect, looking back, their perspective seems to be wholly wrong. Yes, there's certainly a darker tone. Yes, there is more anxiety and vulnerability, and the recording sounds different, but every artist needs to experiment in advance regardless of the critical acclaim of their previous material. The band could have made the same album again and again, but they would get tired of that quickly. Rolling Stone critic John Burke said that the music was there, but the lyrics didn't connect with the music and vocals and the album lacked glory, whatever that means. Burke's sentiment was backed by music critic Robert Christow who said that the music was bright and doughy and overpowered the words. and Christow twisted the dagger when he said memorable as most of these songs are they never hook in never give up the musical verbal phrase that might encapsulate their every which way power other reviews were a little bit more mixed billboards at ox said that the album was candid and confessional genuinely comic and gently satiric but also noted that the relationship of music to message was notably off author emil mid stated in his 1970 book mystery train that grail marcus's take on the album had become the predominant approach to stage fright marcus had called the album an album of guilt doubt disenchantment and false optimism the past no longer served them the song seemed trapped in the present a jumble of desperation that was at once personal and social The music was still special, but in every sense, that kind of unity that had given force was missing. Now, instead of hearing music that could not really be broken down, one picked at parts for satisfaction. Marcus' influence had its effect on the reviews of the time, and people speculate critics were more lukewarm because of the band's decreasing output. Retrospectively, stage fright had become more well-received. The more positive assessment seemed to make more sense and the grand scheme of the first five years of the band's career, Stage Fright, which is different, still fits completely into the trifecta of albums. Stage Fright is no more an outsider than the Brown album was to music from Big Pink. The progression is there and sound, but there is enough that remains intact to suggest that the same ideation went into creating the songs. Rock critic John Baldy stated in the Q Magazine review in 1991 that the vocal work on The Rumor and Daniel and the Sacred Heart as well as the trio of ballads All The Glory, Sleeping, and The Shape I'm In are career highlights and went one step further by proclaiming stage Right" as their greatest record. Lastly, All Music's William Rollman approached the album in his 2002 book All Music Guide to Rock, the definitive guide to rock, pop, and soul in what I think is one of the best takes. It was certainly different from their previous work, but it was hardly less compelling for it. With Stage Fright complete and on track to be one of their most successful albums to date, regardless of critical acclaim, the band did what they seemed to hate, tour. 1970 was a large year for the band as they continued to play some of their biggest but most difficult shows with the troublesome Festival Express among them, and it wouldn't be long before the band once again shunned the road and began to record their next album. Thank you, everyone, for listening to The Band of History. Much like The Band, when creating stage fright, this episode was a struggle to create. I'm not sure why, but it was. It could be because the script was over 21 pages, my longest episode to date. But uh, it was a lot of researching, it was a lot of writing, and it was a lot of ideation around how we were going to bring this episode together. You know, Stage Fright has quickly become one of my favorite albums of all time, and the rumor has been one of my favorite songs of the band, if not my favorite, for the past few years. I was very interested in hearing what other people thought as I was writing this episode, so I put a question on the band podcast Facebook page uh, about what the favorite song was from a fan perspective. And I have a ranked list now. I put all the songs there, and the three that came back as the top were number one, The Shape I'm In, really no... Um, surprise there obviously one of the most well-known songs uh, like I suggested in the episode uh, number two kind of got me um, WS Walcos' Medicine show was number two uh, fantastic song uh, very much in line with some of the earlier band stuff so that's not surprising and number three was a surprise to me uh, maybe it shouldn't be but it was the rumor uh, I always felt that the rumor was severely underrated um, and not a lot of people talked about it Uh, but it does very much feel like one of the earlier band songs, but still has enough of that kind of stage fright era vibe to it that makes it really unique. Um, And I want to include one comment from uh, a fan, Barry Sloan, who said this on why he picked The Rumor as his favorite song when voting in the poll. I picked The Rumor because for me, it remains one of the band's most elusive songs. I believe that at one time, Ralph Gleason compared it to a jazz ballad. During a period of time when Robertson's writing was creeping towards the pedantic, the song remains subtle and mysterious, hinting at the pain but not directly asking, as Robertson soon did on Where Do We Go From Here. I think it remains as an underappreciated band classic. Thank you Barry for that comment, I couldn't have said it better than myself, you are definitely more eloquent of a speaker than I am. Definitely thanks again for that comment. And remember, you can rate and review our podcast on your favorite podcast platform. It helps the podcast in more ways than one. Also, we've curated a playlist for listeners of the show. You can find that in the description of this episode and on Spotify. As always, remember to check us out on social media. We put a lot of time into providing great content in historical context on unique photos on our Instagram and Facebook and Twitter. You can find us on those three platforms at The Band Podcast and you can join the conversation about the podcast and the band on our brand new Facebook page, The Band Podcast. Check it out. I'll also include a link to that in the description. And as always, this podcast is part of Pantheon Media, a great partner. They house various amazing music shows focusing on modern artists of today, but also old school artists, as well as other music related shows you can check them out online and there is a link in the description of this episode as well. So thank you again for listening to the Band of History. We'll see you next time.